Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Now, here in Tennessee, it is springtime outside, and with all of the flowers bursting out and the trees blooming and everything, it all made me think of fresh ideas, fresh projects, new beginnings. And it seemed like the ideal time to interview a friend of mine whose book on creativity, Hatch, Brainstorming Secrets of a Theme Park Designer, is all about breathing new ideas and new life into old projects. So McNair Wilson is a remarkably versatile and creative performer and storyteller. He has worked professionally as an actor, a director, teacher, playwright, cartoonist, Disney Imagineer, author, and is a coach to public speakers and corporate executives nationwide. Beyond Disney, he has developed projects for Universal Studios, Warner Brothers, and Sony. McNair has performed his one-man plays, The Fifth Gospel, and From Up Here at colleges and conferences and churches of every flavor. He has taught his trademark Imaginuity process for clients as diverse as IBM and Salvation Army, and he has spoken in 33 countries all over the world. So, McNair, thanks for joining me today. I guess that's all the time we have, Steve. Thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to, good to be with you, my friend. Yes, excellent. Now, I was trying to think of when we first met. I think it was many years ago, maybe at a writer's conference, and at the sure, time yeah. you were still sketching out ideas for your creativity book. I think you even showed me some of the early illustrations you were going to include in it. And eventually, I had a copy, and I gave it away to someone. You never gave it back. Can you imagine that? You know, it says on the back of the book, Steve, buy two copies because you'll give it to a friend, and you'll never see it again. I actually have a, pa- a pastor friend who I sent a copy to free because we're old, old friends. And I knew him before he was, I think he might have been a part-time youth minister at the time. Now he's a senior pastor. And he opened it up, left it on the counter at home, and he got home and it wasn't there. And he asked his family and they all acted like he was talking Chinese. Two days later, he comes home in the middle of the day to grab something. And his wife is sitting at the kitchen table, drinking coffee and blithely reading his book. And he says, wait, that's, oh, she's, oh, you're talking about this. So he asked me to send him one to church, which I did. He opened it up, left it on his desk, went to lunch with some guys, came back, and someone stole it off the desk of the senior pastor. <laughs> so he had me send one to a friend of his who doesn't even go to his church in a plain brown wrapper, because I usually do cartoons on the outside if people order the book from me. That way they can get it signed to them. So it's it's been fun. I've had a lot of reports of people loaning to the book, and it, it disappeared. And I don't think people mean to steal it. I think they read it, loan it to somebody else who loans it to somebody else, and it just never never gets back in the loop. So I, that's, well, that's, that's a good problem me, to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad it's having that effect. Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent. And so congrats on that and also on your other Thanks. success in these intervening years since we've seen each other last. And uh, and I thought today we'll this will be great because we can touch on ideas uh, from your background of creativity but also on public speaking and storytelling. And I thought we might just kind of jump to the past and this whole idea, as soon as I read Disney Imagineer, I know people say, what, what is that? What does an Imagineer do at Disney? And I thought we could just start. Tell us a little bit about that gig that you had and kind of what that involved. Imagineering is the is the division of Disney of 20 plus Disney divisions that designs, does the concept work and oversees the construction of all Disney theme parks, 
resorts, water parks, anything that you do at a Disney property. And now with the opening of Shanghai uh, Disneyland Resort on the mainland China, that's 12 Disney theme parks worldwide. The sun literally doesn't sit on the mouse, sat on the mouse. And uh, Imagineering was a, a think tank that Walt actually formed in the early 50s. He called it WED Enterprises, W-E-D, formed from his initials, Walter Elias Disney. So it was WED Enterprises, the home of Imagineering. And then in the 1980s, uh, when the new CEO, Michael Eisner, came, he wanted to kind of bring continuity to the, the nomenclature and how they called things at Disney. So everybody, it became, instead of Walt Disney Productions, became the Walt Disney Company, and each division was Walt Disney, like Walt Disney Attractions, Walt Disney Consumer Products, so on. And so we became Walt Disney Imagineering. So some of us long-timers still call it WED once in a while just for fun, and you'll see the name WED online. But uh, it was be- legally begun in December of 1952 and has been the – the, the, the division of Disney uh, that oversees and designs all those properties. And I first heard the name Imagineering in the early, mid-60s when Walt, on his Sunday night TV show that so many of us watched and loved, uh, introduced a man named Claude as his head Imagineer on a new project. And I yelled at my mom, Imagineer, what is that? She won't keep listening. And I began <laughs> to research it. And, of course, this is long before the Internet, um, went to the library and finally figured out what it was. And a couple of years later, had an opportunity to meet Walt Disney and spend a few minutes with him one-on-one when he was the Grand Marshal of the Rose Parade. And he saw that I was carrying a sketchbook in those days, just a little simple spiral sketchbook and some buildings and trains that I designed. He said, I love trains. Don't you? I do too. I said, but they're an excuse for me to design town. He said, do you want to be an architect? I said, no, I want to be like that guy Claude in your TV show. I want to be an engineer. (laughs) And he literally reached over to me and we were just sitting almost knee to knee and uh and poked me in the shoulder and said well you want to be an imagineer you shall be one fast Mm. forward many years i had a street theater company that was doing renaissance festivals all over the united states and we were invited by disney to be in italy in epcot for the opening three months of epcot and uh in very short order we went from doing 10 shows a day in italy to 12 shows a day in Italy and the United Kingdom, and eventually 45 shows a day throughout Epcot, different kinds of shows, but all audience participation in street theater. And unbeknownst to us, from the very beginnings of our time at Epcot, even before the opening, doing cast member previews, employee preview nights, the Imagineering guys were watching us and just enamored of how we were pulling people out of the audience and in a moment making them part of the show. So we were invited to do some consulting at WED out in Glendale, just down the street from the Disney Studios in Burbank. And and uh, one of the very first questions, the head of Imagineering, who became my boss, Marty Scolari, said, have you ever thought about putting live actors into brick-and-mortar attractions and make them a part of the ride? And I said, only since 1966, when my <laughs> family first rode Pirates of the Caribbean, or 67, I guess it was, when it opened, uh, and, and and my mom, my High school, my, my junior high drama coach said, geez, if two or three of those pilots were alive, the, the ride would be different every time. And so when we opened the Disney MGM Studios, which I worked on from the very beginning uh, when I was at Imagineering, every one of the major attractions, five or six major attractions, had live elements. And I'm, I'm not talking about just uh, one of the clean-cut little, little, little Mormons that says, move across the aisle and fill in every seat but performers as a part of the attraction. 
which they had never done before. And Time Magazine and USA Today and all took notice of that this sort of different theme park that we had that we had created. And much of that is still there. In fact, one of my proudest development creations that I worked on at Disney was I one day I said in a meeting I said you know we've got this wonderful movie set Hollywood Boulevard the entrance to the studio theme park with the Grauman's Chinese Theater that we had reproduced from the original 1927 blueprints I mean it's full size I said what if we had instead of street theater shows what if we had a group of actors who were the citizens of Hollywood Boulevard and I coined the term streetmosphere street theater and atmosphere entertainment and they weren't impersonating famous dead actors as Universal does, and that works, uh, sort of. Uh, but they were just the generic cop and autograph hound and gossip columnist, and and we had a guy who had trash from the stars in his trash can and so on. And it was an instant success, and here we are, however many years later from its opening in 1989, and the Streetmosphere program still alive and well. In fact, the word Streetmosphere is now used throughout the theme park industry, not just at Disney for live actors that bring life in a themed way to a particular area of a, of a theme park. So I was privileged to be at Disney uh, Imagineering during a particular time of, of hyper-creation and worked on five theme parks, some scratch, the Disney Seas theme park at Tokyo, the Paris Disneyland, the California Adventure that sits next to Disneyland now, and worked a little bit on Animal Kingdom, and then contributed to a um, the development of um, attractions in other parks. And another favorite was uh, when we were adding to Disney MGM Studios, adding not a land, but a street, Sunset Boulevard. Hmm. Like adding a section to a mall, you need an anchor. We've got Nordstrom and Macy's, we're going to add, you know, Dillard's or whatever, J.C. Penney's. And so I was tasked with putting together a group of my favorite knuckleheads, as I called them. And Michael Eisner brought a friend of his over to work with us, a guy named Mel Brooks. And, you know, when Mel, Mel Brooks walked in the room, we all confessed later, you know, just kill us now because life is going to be disappointing from here on out. <laughs> and we worked with Mel for a number of weeks, a couple of days a week, brainstorming what we might do. And the, in the initial going, Disney MGM Studios wasn't a theme park about doing turning movies into rides, but about showing how it's done. So, for example, when we designed the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular, it's not we're not trying to make you think you're seeing Indy live. We want you to think you're watching indie being filmed. And so it's kind of behind the scenes and there are breaks between sets and you, uh, between sequences and so on. So with the Mel Brooks, we said, you know, as much as we love all your movies, we don't think any one of them suggests a ride in and of itself, but we would like to use young Frankenstein as our muse to do a scary, funny attraction of some sort. And I was simultaneously working on a high-end um, hotel that was going to be at the entrance to the studio theme park that was going to be just the most expensive hotel we had because you've always got that top 1% of the top 1% who, when you give them the nicest room, if you had a nicer room, they'd be glad to pay for that. So we said, <laughs> let's, let's build that hotel. And it was going to be Art Deco, old old Hollywood, very fancy, you know, valet service 24-7 for your room. And I said, what if one end, I said one, one day in the Mel Brooks 
medium. What if one end of that hotel was the old original hotel, now deserted? So we began to brainstorm what that might be. And we came up with the idea, if you get in the elevator, it doesn't work. So you get in the service elevator and you go up and up and up. Something rattles and shakes and the elevator rocks and rolls. And literally the elevator car comes out of the shaft and goes down the hall. Well, we all laughed. And Mel says, can we do that? I said, well, I know a guy. And he said, you know a guy? I said, yes. Name is Jack. He was the chief engineer on uh, Space Mountain, they could figure it out. And later that day at lunch, I shared the idea with the engineers, and they said, sure, we could do that. Stephen, they said it so effortlessly. It was like (laughs) I asked them months ago, and they'd been working on the answer. Well, they were engineers who – they they weren't at Parsons Engineering in Pasadena building freeway off-ramps. They were at Imagineering building theme parks and and, and thrill rides and all kinds. So their answer was always yes. And then they'd go off and figure out how to get to yes. So I love that about Imagineering, that everybody, that was, you know, no idea was too crazy, too small, too anything. Now, was that – yeah, was that the Tower of Terror? I know you worked on that. That's the Tower it of became, Terror. It became Tower of Terror. It was originally the Mel Brooks Hollywood Horror Hotel. And huh. as Mel would say, say horror slowly or it's not a family ride anymore. So I took to, <laughs> to nicknaming it uh, Hotel Mel. And it's interesting. We showed the idea. Michael Eisner said, that's great. I'll take four of them. And um, and <laughs> because it was attached to this real hotel, they didn't build it for a few years. And then somebody dug out their rough plans and said, this thing's a monster. We built it. It would look like a freestanding hotel by itself because we didn't build the actual real hotel that was going to appear to be connected to. They held right. off. And then they came up with the Tower of Terror overlay, uh, the Twilight Zone overlay, which is still in two of the two of the Tower of Terrors. The one in Japan has a different kind of story, mythology attached to it, but it's the same basic ride. And then the one in California now has been rethemed to the Guardians of the Galaxy. But the basic get in an elevator, take you up, quote unquote, 13 stories. It's actually much higher than that. Um, but the building is painted to look like 13 stories because that's scary, 13. <laughs> and then, and then the other d- dirty little secret. I've, I'm sure most of your listeners know this. Uh, when they went to um, Otis Elevator to ask him to help them do the opposite of what Otis had been in the business of doing for literally 140 some years, they said, "Well, we'll have to put a motor on it to slow it down." And then one of the engineers, again being creative, said, "Well, if we can slow it down, could we speed it up?" So the final drop. And you drop more than once. You drop three stories and six stories, and it's randomized by the computer. The final drop, you're actually being pulled to the ground faster than gravity. Not that you'd noticed, because falling is falling. Right. But, um, so, yeah. Well, that's that, pretty that, cool, yeah. And that's kind of the short version. I tell it in a little more detail in Hatch, in my brainstorming book. But but that's, you know, to, 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 to be in a place that really capitalized, because if I had an idea, like when I was selling Street Mister, pushing Street Mister, I was able to do little sketches of these characters in my sketchbook, photocopy them, put them on a bullet board, and then I would talk about each one, and I'd grab a hat, and I would enact them. So I'd use my theater background, my cartooning background, my storytelling background to to sell this concept, which I thought would be fun and would last a few years. And I remember telling the cast, we, we auditioned about 2,400 actors in 10 cities. Uh, to put together this as well as a couple of other things. And I said, if this thing lasts five years, it will be because the idea was great and you guys made it better. Hmm. And now it's still there all these years later. Still there all these years. And that's great. Yeah, I know. And all the time I've known you, I've never known the story kind of behind the story. Like I knew you were involved there, but uh, I I don't guess that it's ever come up of how how it all worked out. Well, that's great. And um, 
I, I like how you mentioned some uh, just offhandedly. It's so natural for you to think in terms of creativity that you said something like um, they said yes, and then let's find a way to make it a yes or something. You bet. Yeah. That really strikes me as a key to creativity is, you know, uh, commit to the idea and then, you know, instead of defaulting back to all of the things that could go wrong, all of the reasons why it won't work, all of the reasons why no one's tried it before, say oh. yes. Now, now what? Well, let's find a way to make yes happen. In fact, the reason I even wrote the book was because they had noticed that at Imagineering, very quickly, any team that I was not necessarily even if I was heading up a team, any team that I was a part of, concept and design team, brainstorming group, we got to more ideas and bigger ideas quickly. And they said, you have a system. And I said, well, it's a combination of standing waist deep in tapioca and silent prayer. And, of course, they said, you know, their question was, how many peas in tapioca and can you teach this to others? In other words, they didn't care, care what the process was. Is it a transferable, teachable concept? And what I had noticed was even at Imagineering, they didn't have a particular system. The system for design at Imagineering was take a half a dozen really brilliant, crazy, wacky, creative people, put them in a room, leave them there long enough, and they'll come up with something. Well, they had the event advantage of time. Not all projects and all organizations have that. Right. And so I thought, so what's the system? So I came up with what in the book I call the seven agreements of brainstorming. And basically, we're teaching grown-ups how to play well with each other again. Because brainstorming, usually what most people have been involved in is playful arguing with snacks on the table. You have an, you have an idea and the guy across the table from you tells you why you're full of baloney or worse or why it won't work or why it's too yeah. expensive or how how would we ever do that? You can't make an elevator come out of the shaft and go down the hall. Well, not yet. There's never <laughs> been a, re a reason to. And, and so one of the seven agreements of brainstorming is wild ideas. And sometimes you need the idea that's wilder than you really need, but you need to say that in order to get where you're going. Uh, otherwise, you just do iteration. Otherwise, you're... Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people say, I want to be in a, when I was working, I want to be an Imagineer. I have ideas. And when I asked them some of their ideas, they'd say, well, they should do the Haunted Mansion, only scarier. That's not, that's not an idea. It's like if you and I were <laughs> going to do, do a convention and last year we did red t-shirts for the, for the, for the convention t-shirt and this year somebody said, what if we did blue? Well, that's not an idea. That's an iteration. That's a, hmm. you know, a version. What you want to do is, is say, why does it need to be a t-shirt? Maybe it's something else, yeah. you know, and, and somebody might say, maybe it's a tattoo. Well, people don't want tattoos. Just put, <laughs> tattoo, put tattoo on the wall. And that's the other thing. In brainstorming, the, the three key words are think, say, write. Anything you think during the brainstorming process, say it out loud. No such thing as a stupid idea or a small idea or unusable idea. Say it out loud. And then when you say it out loud, write it down and stick it on the wall. Because tomorrow somebody's going to be on the team that wasn't here yesterday, and they need to see that thing and say, what's the thing about a about an elevator coming out of the shaft? Oh, well, it was just an idea of Roy Adler. That'll never work. Why not? Have we asked yeah. anybody? So it, the idea is just to say to people, what's the wildest possible idea? I, I had the privilege of working with and then getting to know a lot of the old uh, uh, Imagineers who worked on designing Disneyland. And I, and I wondered, was Walt encouraging? Because I think encouragement is a key part of creativity. And they said, not particularly, but what he would do is a couple of things. is You'd present an idea, and he would say, and then what happens? And what he was saying is, you really thought it through. Have you really gone to the 
end of where this this line of thinking is going. And the other thing he would say is, you made a good start of it. In other words, I like it so far, but I don't think we're there yet. Huh. And I love that 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 system. And our boss, Marty Scalar, would would do that too. Anything else? What else, what is next? What what's after that? And I remember I was recently in a meeting with a group of executives. I've been consulting at the headquarters in Atlanta for Chick-fil-A. And they're a very creative organization. They're always looking at new stuff. And so, I mean, they have a 40,000-square-foot innovation center where they do creative thinking and workshops and stuff that I've gone down and done a lot of events at. And it actually is called The Hatch. And, uh, and I was in a meeting with these executives, and I'd ask everybody to tell to share a one-minute review of a book they'd recently read within the last year that helped them professionally. Got to everybody, except we had to stop and move on with the business of the meeting. And at lunch, I found myself alone in that room having Chick-fil-A sandwiches with Dan Cathy, the CEO. And he said, McNair, you, you never asked me my book. I said, I asked everybody. They just stopped before we got to you. He said, well, I recently read Good to Great. Have you read that? And I said, no. He said, well, it's one of the most popular business books out there. And I said, Dan, why would I want to read a book that stops at great? And he just got this wide-eyed look. I said, you guys don't do that. You guys are constantly taking things on your menu that are popular and changing them to make them better. There's nothing wrong with it, but you changed it. You fixed it. You improved it. That's what's after great. And, and he said, oh, I love that. I love that. And he's always – he's a guy that loves slogans and so on. Uh, and and so uh, he he took the what's after great thing of mine and he credited me with it. But no big deal, but – and, and said to people, okay, we're doing great. What's next? What's after hmm. great? I like it. I like it a lot. And I just like sort of this whole idea of thinking out of the egg. You know, let's, mm. let's hatch. Um, I was in Denver a number of years ago speaking at an event, and uh, when I left the um, hotel room, I noticed that at the end of the hall, they had the exit sign near the floor instead of oh. above the door. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, that's ridiculous. I was thinking, who on earth would need an exit sign near the floor except someone who's crawling along the... Aha. I remember thinking, you know what? I bet you that someone came here and said, let's pretend that we're trying to get out of this building in a fire. What are we yep. going to be doing? We'll be crawling. Okay, well, let's crawl. You can't see the top of the door, so how are you going to know which door in the hotel gets you to the stairwell? Well... There's no way. So stick the exit sign down by the base of the door so that if people need it. And I remember thinking creativity isn't coming up with an idea nobody else could come up with, but it's coming up with ideas that anyone could come up with if they were only looking at it, the problem from that perspective. And I think that, yeah, that person had this unique perspective that opened it up to this creative idea. So, over the years, I've often asked myself, if I'm working on a story or if I'm working on a book, um, do I need to get on the floor? Um, not maybe literally, but maybe literally. Get on the sure. floor and look around, crawl around, and look at this idea from a completely different perspective and see what I come up with. That's my exercise. Yes. <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the characteristic, when I started teaching brainstorming, they asked me to teach the studio to executives. And I said, boy, I don't know. I've met some of those Disney executives. That's, that's going to be tough. And and something came from the very first session of what, what I call tapioca thinking the class at the at the studio that had not happened at the classes at Imagineering. And that is guys would say, 
the executives, men and women, would say, well, I understand your process. It's valuable. We'll use it. But I'm not creative. (laughs) I didn't didn't know what they meant because I knew I had a much broader definition of creative. What they meant was they weren't artistic. And they'd Hmm. say things like, well, I can't draw uh, stick figures. I said, sure you can, because you went to camp and you played hangman on the bus going and coming, and you had to draw a stick figure. Oh, that's right. Okay. And I said, and even if you were good at drawing stick figures, there's nobody hiring stick figure drawers, so give up that right away. (laughs) The other thing is, uh, people would say, well, I can't draw a straight line. And I said, you go to any art supply store, they'll have an entire aisle or two or three of nothing but triangles and T-squares and rulers of every length and size. And you know who buys those? Really talented artists, because guess what? They can't draw a straight line. Nobody can. And when I went to the Minneapolis College of Art and Design on a scholarship, at no point in applying for the scholarship, receiving the scholarship, or my first day there, did anybody say, oh, by the way, you can draw a straight line, can't you? It never came up. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not a test for anything. And so it really is about seeing things Quite differently, we did a an exercise that I that I put together at Imagineering. We were frustrated that they wouldn't let us design any any little rides for kids. All the rides had to be big. They had to accommodate two thousand people an hour to take care of capacity. Yeah. So no matter what it was, it had to be big. So I said, I noticed when I'd go to the park, I'd see these little kids. I mean, little tiny kids that were just starting to walk or had been walking for a little while. And and I thought, what's it like to go through a park? So we took a, a Betamax, you know, state-of-the-art camera, lashed it at eye level to a to a, uh, a stroller, a Disney stroller, and walked through Disneyland for two hours and then fast-forwarded it and showed you Disneyland from the point of view of a little kid. And it was knees and shins and walls and tree trunks and the bottoms of doors and people standing in line and you're in crowds. And it was as a result of that that we designed Toontown with all rides for little kids. And the only thing we did different was we made sure that the, that the little kids' rides could accommodate adults, too, because we yeah. knew the adults would want to ride them, whether or not they had a little kid with them. Yeah, that's the same idea as the exit sign. And uh, I mm-hmm. think, it, you know, getting getting down on that level. And I think really for people, no matter, you know, what their project it might be if they're writing a screenplay, a novel, if they're presenting, um, uh, telling stories, presenting at a conference or a corporate event, something like that. Just that idea of, okay, let's look at this from a different perspective. Let's not shoot the idea down right away. Let's look for a way to say yes. I think this is really practical and very helpful for people in, in all sorts of creative endeavors. One of the things I say at Writers' Conference is the novelist. I had a woman call up to me one time said, I've published four novels. I'm working on two more. I just took a novel writing class, and they said, here are the seven or nine, I forget the number, basic elements of all novels. And she said, I, I, I ran in my brain, I ran my novels that are published. I'm doing fine through that. And she said, it didn't work. I said, fine, hold on to that list. Someday you'll be stuck, grab the list and say, oh, there's number six. I haven't tried that. And, and what I tell novelists, I say, is your plot twisted enough? Or is it too twisted? And sometimes the exercise of writing it, you need to twist it a little more, turn it around a little more. What if that happened? What if that didn't happen? Now, some novels, novelists, they have the idea kind of from beginning to end. They have a general idea where they're going. Our friend, mutual friend Jerry Jenkins, he says he does writing as a process of discovery. 
has a general idea of what the story is about, but doesn't actually know how things are going to happen. I remember being at a conference with Madeline Langell, Wrinkle in Time, and she was writing a book, and her young son, who later became a uh, a noted surgeon was reading the book and she said, mom, you killed off my favorite character. She said, I didn't kill him. I discovered him dead. Hmm. And, and so that the story kind of to- at some point took over and told itself. And I just, I, I really want to, you know, push writers, especially fiction writers to say, you know, don't try to be so in charge of this that you know all the answers. Let the story tell you sometimes. So twist it, untwist it, make it twistier. And and the thing about writing is you can unwrite. You can read. I mean, first of all, you know, because you've written a ton of books, you, you, you don't write. Mostly you rewrite. And I've yeah. heard so many great, great authors say, well, I, I'm a good rewriter. If I get enough words down, the, the book I'm writing now that is the, the follow-up to Hatch, because this is going to be a, a four-book trilogy on, on creativity, uh, is the book that <laughs> Based on the talk that I created and answered that question, I'm not creative. And it's the it's the, the recapturing creative spirit, which is the, my TED talk that's online. And, and then I discovered four kind of observable, repeatable habits that all actively creative people seem to have. And they are they are not drawing and painting and singing and dancing. They're things that everybody does, like challenge the assumptions. What are the rules? Well, let's break them and see what happens. And and so it's in, in the process of doing that, I've overwritten to the max. I've probably got enough for two or three books. So some of them will entire chapters will uh, not be in this book. They may form the basis of another book in the series. They may be a blog post. But the process of writing, as a friend of mine, uh, the author Sark, S-A-R-K, some of your listeners will know her. She she says, every time you write, something good comes of you sitting down and writing, whether or not it accrues to the project at hand or just you jump-starting and getting your brain and getting the words flowing. And I find that true all the time. I've put it this way sometimes when I teach writing. I say, every idea is a doorway to the next. And so yes. sometimes, you know, we, we have this idea and we think it's, it's all that and we write it and then we realize, oh, that's not. I've got to cut it. I've got to delete it. I've got to set it aside, whatever. And some people do feel very much like that's failed, like I've wasted time on that no. project or, or something like that. And I don't believe that's the case at all because – that you know, if you were to walk into a woodcarver's shop, uh, you would see piles of wood carvings everywhere. That's yes. not wasted wood. That's the necessity of him doing his job in order to create these masterpieces of carving. It's the same with a novelist. If you were to walk into my word processor, <laughs> you would see piles of words that have yes. been shaved out, shaved off. But that that's not a waste. That's it's the process, and you know, it's the only way. Because I went to college for the visual arts, even though I was also doing theater full time, because I've been doing it since I was five. You, you know, you take an art history class, and every famous artist I've ever studied, even a little bit, when they died, they found in their studio all kinds of unfinished art. Sometimes the pentimento, the the, the, the the act of painting over another painting and finding oh sure other other images uh, uh, in between. I found a chapter the other day as I was looking through the chapters of my book, um, and I said, where did this come from? And it's called Teaching Creativity. And I started reading it, and I said, well, that's the opening chapter. No, I've already written the opening chapter. 
So I have, for the last couple of days, been going through and comparing, and there are big paragraphs that say the, tell the exact same story, the exact same illustration, but because they were written probably months apart. Um, so I'm, I'm comparing, and I'm pulling the phrase over here is better than the one over here. So I'm combining the two and taking kind of the, you know, the, the best of. It's like when the, um, a lot of times when, when, when people do videos, uh, especially stand-up comics, they might take two or three shows. Hmm. And sometimes they'll take the best of an entire evening. But sometimes a story will go particularly well on the third night rather than the first or second night. And they'll pull that and slug that in. And that's the same as, as writers editing. They'll find a, a sentence or, or even a word couplet. You know, it could be anything. You say, boy, I like that. I, I, I tend to over, overdo it on, on uh, playing with words. But because I coach speakers and, and speak at writing conferences, one of my favorite rules of thumb for both groups, and I also say this to graphic designers because they really break this rule, is always go for clarity over cleverness now uh, yes. if you can if you can be clever and clear that's the home run that's what we all want but if you have to choose clarity because the clever way you've said it or the clever way you've done it isn't as clear then you drop back you know it's that that old <laughs> that, that funny old joke about the synonym synonym is the word you use when you can't spell the word you want to use <laughs> yeah, exactly but I find sometimes, you know, it, 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 the thesaurus can beat you up and say, oh, I love that's a great word. But it, I, I think the thesaurus for me is a great tool for when I want to say, I don't want to say create again. What's another word here that I could use? Yeah. Um, so thank, thankfully, word processors can, can help. I know my word processor that I use on my Mac uh, was created only for Mac, and they've got a tool where I can go through and it will make me, in any given document, a list of all the words and the number of times I've used them. And it really helps me not to use, say, maybe the same adjective or the same, you know, um, so, something I just, you know, I don't want yeah, to keep saying the same, same thing over and over. And so that, that's that's valuable. But I think you've got to write it all. you got to, you know, you got to write, as, as they said about Mozart, too many notes. Well, maybe. <laughs> you a lot of good ones. Let's talk for a second about um, teaching presenters or speakers, as you mentioned, that you do often. What are some of the What are some of the keys for you when you when people come to you and say, "Look, I've got to give this speech or I've got to give this presentation." You know, you have all this wide experience, both from theater and, and speaking and doing one man shows and all these programs. How, how can I improve? Where do you start with someone? Two or three things. One is every presentation, whether it's a two-minute announcement or a 40-minute actual talk, speak, keynote, something, or a one-day class, two-hour class, I ask the question right up front, what's your objective? Why are you saying this? And the answer to that is going to be the action that you want the listener to take. An announcement may be, hey, we're having a, a workday Saturday here at the office to clean up. We're here at church to clean up. A clipboard is going around the room right now. Sign up if you can join us. What you want people to do is sign their name on the clipboard and show up on Saturday. So what can you say to get people to sign up and show up? 
And the same thing with a long presentation. You're not making announcements. If you think you're just getting up and giving people information, you're doing a disservice to them. You want them to take an action. You want change to occur in their mind, in their life, in the organization, something. So in terms of content, the number one thing I say is figure out what the objective and stick with that. And your objective will help you in crafting the presentation to say, oh, I've got a great story. But you say, you know what? That is a great story, but it doesn't serve this objective. So Mm. that story needs to be saved for a different presentation. The other thing I would say, a a, a rule of thumb for speakers is practice. And the word, it's a made-up word. It's O-Y-F-O-L. Oifel. Oifel. Oifel is when you're preparing a talk, you need to prepare it oifel, on your feet, out loud. (laughs) People say, well, you you want me to rehearse this? Absolutely. If the first time, when you get up to give a talk, if the first time you've ever given it out loud is to an audience, you're not going to give the best version of that. Now, I've had big name public speakers and and pastors of huge churches and CEOs say I would well, Michael Hyatt who used to be the the, the CEO of of, of uh, 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 the publishing company anyway yeah, was it Thomas he, Nelson I think maybe Thomas Nelson he said when he heard that man he said I could have used that 20 years ago I said well now you've got it now you yeah. know people beat themselves up about the past the past really is the place we can't get to from here yeah. so leave it alone just leave it alone you didn't do it then you're going to do it now and I've had well-known speakers go back and look at talks they've been And I said, "That's why it's no good. I never, and I, I, I never prepared it, never practiced it." You know, I'll say to pastors, "Do you have a do you have a church basketball team, a church a boys or girls softball team that people? Yeah, uh, do, do they just play games? Oh no, no, they they practice Tuesdays and Thursdays, really. And what do they do at practice? Sit down and pass the ball around and say, "Oh, that's nice." And oh, the bat—it's wood. It's hard, or it's aluminum. Oh, it's you know. No, they go out <laughs> in the field and they play softball. They go out in the court and they play basketball. So why wouldn't you prepare to do a talk by standing up and doing a talk? People think they're going to stand up and all of a sudden the gesture fairy is going to fly over and twinkle on them and something magical is going to happen. And in that <laughs> regard, one, yeah, one of the one of the. The suggestions I give is if you have, for example, say a three-minute or a three-point talk, find in each one of those three points, if you only found one, a place where you're going to make a – you're going to decide on and practice and rehearse a single illustrative gesture because there's only two kinds of gestures. Either they illustrate – and expand on the gesture uh, on the point, or they distract and annoy. There's no such thing as a neutral gesture. And we do all these hand motions and poking at the air and waving our hand and waving our hand, and, wa- and it doesn't mean anything. And it's like it's annoying. Stop it. Put them to your side. That's the other thing I say. People stand in front of an audience with your hands just naturally at your side, not in your pockets, not clutching each other, just at your side. If you can do that. Then when you make a gesture, and a gesture is anything you do or don't do with your body. Sometimes the point is so important, you just want them to look at your face and hear what you're about to say. So do nothing. Don't move. Don't this oifel thing. And I've had so many pastors who now say they'll go into the in, in the, where they speak on Saturday night, Sunday morning, whenever it is they speak, and they will do their entire lesson, entire sermon, whatever they call it, all the way through, 
sometimes even in the robe or the suit or whatever it is they they because you want to get used to the, the to everything that's there. And what they do is they find out they've written something that's very clever, but you can't say it out loud. It's a tongue twister, so they have to rewrite it. <laughs> or they'll say, you know, I don't need all this, or I need something else here, or I need to pause here. And, ju- and people say, well, I'm, I'm not performing. You bet you are performing. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, who wants to listen to you if you're not engaging to people? So this on your feet out loud to really get up and practice it. Whatever it is, no, you know, I was I was teaching this one time at Ken Davis's Dynamic Communicators Workshop, the SCORE conference, and and one of the guys in the back raised his hand. He says, "Hey, I want to tell you something. It's a couple of days ago we were driving up here to the conference, and McNair was riding shotgun with me, and he was looking out the window, and I thought he was talking to himself, and he stopped, and I said, Are you okay?' Or everything? I said, "No, I'm just working on a new section for my talk, and I." trying different ways that, that it would uh, work. So he said, I know that he practices what he preaches. He was literally out loud working in this noodle sec- new little section of his talk. And I said, well, I, you know, not that there's a room for spontaneity or ad lib. Of course there is. But ad lib and spontaneity are always better when they're in the context of something that's prepared. And I don't mean scripted. I just mean that you prepare and have a general idea of where you're going, the stories you're going to tell, the points you're going to make, and you rehearse a gesture that really makes drives that point home. And there may be two or three different ways to do it. So stand in front of a mirror and see what that would, which one seems to work best. Or say to a friend, "Here, listen to this. Which one emphasizes this point a little better?" You know, my background in storytelling, yeah, I almost was laughing when you're saying it because it's I've taught the same thing but in different ways and I mm-hmm. love everything that you just said. I usually tell people write the story with your mouth instead of trying yeah. to write it down on on a page and so exactly the same ideas is doing it out loud and also on your feet, you know, I've sometimes said when you're practicing, you know, it's like body storm I call, instead of just brainstorm, but body storm. Sure. In other words, try out different gestures and actions, and and maybe it works, or maybe you, uh, you know, you you practice it one way as if you were in front of twenty five thousand people, and then another way as if you were just talking with a friend, and see which one informs the other one, and then. But I I think um, all of your experience really comes to bear on this idea of take the time to go through your talk aloud. And even if it's short, even if it's a two-hour thing, um, a lot of people will spend so much time studying and, I'll say, quote, preparing, because they're preparing, but they're preparing to, to know information, not to communicate that information. And a lot of times just a little bit more time, I guess, re- rehearsing might be the way we would say it, or just practicing your talk goes a long, long way. Well, you know, everybody worries about getting up. They, they say, other than violent death, the number two human fear is speaking in front of an audience. Well, you know why that is? It's not about speaking. It's about you're not prepared. You think you have nothing to say, or you have something to say, but you don't know if you're going to get it across. So take all that time you would have spent worrying and get up and do it. Yeah. Practice it. And then you'll be a lot less worried. And and you, uh, we did a, a my 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 former business partner and still very very good friend Max Miller, to whom the book Hatch is dedicated. He and I did a presentational skills class because we'd been in this street theater company together. and we We're just good at it, and we noticed 
we, meaning Imagineering as an organization, noticed that, that one of the ways to get ahead in that organization was be one of the people who was good at making presentations. Even making the people, I would, I would get asked by other teams to present their project uh, because of the way I was good at making presentations. So we did a presentation skills class. And I remember one woman happened to be British, very, very articulate, and she was the assistant to one of our senior um, people. And sometimes the person to whom she was an assistant would be out of town, and Jane would have to sub and make the presentation. She was just scared to death. I said, Jane, one of the things that you do for your boss is that you take all this information, you do the executive summary, you congeal it down, you say, here's the important stuff. I said, so you know more than she does, because you've only given her the summary. She goes, that's right, that's right, you're right about that. So I said, to, she says, well, I'm not the expert. I said, if you're the one talking, you're the expert. <laughs> and it, she just got wide-eyed, and she became quite quite a, a an in-demand speaker because she was ready to ready to give the talk because she prepared so instead of worrying about do i have something to say can i say it? get up and prepare to have something to say and to be able to say it well you know i was taking a um an improv class many years ago with keith mm-hmm. johnstone and uh, he wrote oh yeah impro for storytellers and and made up just a wide variety of improvisational theater games. And, and didn't he collect? He, he, I think he created theater sports. I did. He did. He created Which, theater yeah. sports. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I still remember a couple of the things that he said. One was, you know, um, confidence um, sets an audience at ease, mm-hmm. and this idea that if you get up and you're confident. Um, not proud, not overly haughty or anything, but if you're comfortable in your skin and you get up in front, it sets everyone at ease and it creates this rapport. Uh, another thing that he said was, don't ask, is this funny? Ask, is this true? Yes. So, And that has to do with comedy, right? He's doing comedy, oh. but he says, stop trying to be funny and ask, is this true? Is it honest? And then if it's true... People connect with it, and maybe it's true in a humorous way, or maybe it's true in a poignant way. But shoot for the truth instead of trying to crack a joke. You know, really, you, you talk, fascinating. Well, yeah. Comedy, humor, such an important thing. You, um, you and I both have the reputation of being being witty and funny in our presentations, and we are. Uh, you make me laugh. I hope I make you laugh. But the, the, yeah. the, 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 in none of my PR have I ever used the word comedy or comedian. Now, sometimes people introduce me that way. I might say humorous or witty or something like that. But but I don't because then people, you know, it's like, here he is, Stephen James, the funniest man on the planet. Well, you get up, and until you're funny, you're dead. Yeah, you're dead. absolutely. Well, at writers' conferences, um, I did a talk one year uh, at Jerry Jenkins' Um, conference, and because it's mostly Christian writers, people writing on different uh, themes of faith and so on, uh, and and up on the screen, they put the title of the talk, and the title was, What's So Funny About God? They put it up, and I stood there, and I could feel the uncomfortable, and I said, I know what you're all thinking. Where's the question mark? And they laughed. I said, it's not a question. I'm not asking what's so funny about God. I'm saying this is what's so funny about God. And I proceeded to tell things that I think are absolutely hilarious that are in the Bible. But then I said, so if God's funny, if the Bible stories and the people in them are funny, why aren't 
the things that people in this room are writing are funny. And you know what you tell me? Well, I'm not a funny person. And I say, well, let me ask you, are there people in your book, in your novel? Yes. Are there more than one people? Yes. Do, 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 do you ever have a moment in your book where two of those people are together and talk to each other? Yes. I said, if what the dialogue that you write is real, it'll be funny at some point. Not joke, ha, 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 laugh down, I can't stop laughing, funny, but it'll be, yeah, that's true, boy, people really do that, don't they? That's funny. So, McNair, tell me a little bit, if I'm a presenter and I want to weave a little bit more humor or comedy into my talk, do you have any insights or places that are good for me to start in doing that? Well, it's, yes, if, if you follow my suggestion of having an objective, in other words, wanting to accomplish uh, moving your audience to some sort of action, even if the action is to get them to think about something in a new way. One of the ways to jump into that, if, especially if you might, if what you're asking them to do might be something that's different than the way they're doing it. You're asking them to, to make a shift in their behavior or, you know, the now famous paradigm shift. Um, start from, uh, and it's a classic of standard comedians. Have you ever noticed or have you ever seen this or, you know, uh, or isn't that kind of weird? And what can we do about that? So start from a position of almost that you don't have a solution for it. What can we do? It. What can we do about that? Or why do people do this? So you don't bring yourself off as an expert, or you say, you know, I find sometimes I I do this and I do it again and it never works. Why do I keep doing it that way? So I finally, you know, ask my wife, ask a friend, or if I just said. Well, maybe I just shouldn't do that anymore. You know, my, my friend Ken Davis says, says, I'm getting the age where I come into a room and I don't know why I'm in the room. So like the family dog, I go out and I come back in, thinking that'll jog my, jog my memory. Well, of course it doesn't. So it's a way to introduce humor, make yourself yeah. vulnerable, but enlist your audience in the problem-solving process, even though you've planned this out from the very beginning. And some of them will get it. But even if they get it, they'll enjoy the process. And, and, and so I think questions are a great way. I think, you know, um, I, didn't, I didn't say this when you said, you know, some, some key suggestions about speakers. The biggest wasted moment that most speakers have is the very first words out of their mouth. Yeah. And, and I, I, I have heard myself out loud in big corporate events when a keynote speaker gets up, and, and sometimes speakers that are far more famous than me. I'm, I'm notorious here and there, but I'm not famous. Uh, and the, they'll get up and they'll say, ah, it's great to be here. And I just want to go, oh, shut up. <laughs> Nobody believes you. I say, really? That's what, that's what somebody who's making ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 to talk for 45 minutes, that's how they begin? And I was at a college and I spoke to the entire student body. And afterwards, I was in a class where they were studying communications. And the kids said, well, when you started talking, it seems like you left out something at the beginning. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, all of a sudden, you were just telling this story. I said, what do you mean all of a sudden? He said, well, the very first thing, you just started telling this story. And I said, what was the story? And they told me the story. And I said, and what was my talk about? Well, the four habits of creative people. And I said, what are those habits? And they told me all four habits. And I said, well, why did I tell the story at the beginning? And one of the girls said, because the kid in the story does all four habits. And they go, yeah. And they walk back through <laughs> And then I turned back to the kid and I said, what did I leave out? He said, well, I guess nothing, but you just can't. I said, I'll tell you what I did. I didn't start speaking to the beginning of my message. Anything before that, you're wasting your audience's time. And what you're telling them is, 
well, I'm nervous, I'm, I'm not really prepared, so let me just kind of for a while, and at some point I'll start telling a story. And I said, I don't care whether that's 10 seconds or two minutes, it's wasted moments that you could be doing something more important like communicating. So that's why I say, you know, you, you talked about not writing it down, and I, I, I'm, I'm a, a, a proponent of speakers who are not, not telling themselves as a storyteller, but they have a story in their talk. Write that story down. Get it crafted to a certain point. Read it aloud a few times and set it aside and tell yeah. it your way. But you kind of structure it. And I'm also a big believer in figuring out what's that first phrase, that first sentence, that first story out of your mouth. Write that down. Kind of get it into a certain shape. And this, uh, you know, my TED Talk, Recapping Your Creative Spirit, it's the basis of the new book on the four habits of creative people. You know, if you had heard me give that talk five, six years ago, or hear me give it, uh, I'll be giving it again uh, here in a month or so in Orlando at a conference uh, in May, uh, you you would probably, within one or two syllables, the opening is going to be exactly the same. Because I've done it enough, I know this is the way it works best. And in the book... That's exactly how it will be. Now, sometimes the way you speak it, you know, we've all, I'm sure you've gone through this exercise, taking the transcript of the talk you've given and try to turn it into a book. It almost never works. There are passages yeah. here, here and there that work. But the number of speakers who, you know, I, I learned this the hard way, say, hey, you want to trade books? And their book is a transcript of their talk. And it's, unre- <laughs> it's unreadable. And so I don't trade books, books with people anymore. You yeah. Know? I, I'll tell them, I'll sell you one of my books for half off or, you know, what it costs me to have the book, but I, I don't, I don't give them away. But, uh, but, but prepare. And one of the best things you can prepare is the first thing out of your mouth. And I also think the last thing you say, which my personal choice is not a wrap up. I do the wrap up a minute or two before the end. The end is a, is a closing thought or statement. Now, Tom Morsey is, um, has been a guest here on the show, and he is the head speechwriter over at Disney. And he says almost the exact same things about the first and the last thing you say and the importance of them. And recently, I interviewed Tony Marr, who is a professional storyteller and award-winning storyteller. And he said, again, almost the exact same thing. So whether it's speechwriting, performance storytelling, corporate boardroom speaking, that first moment and that last moment – are powerful. Don't waste those and use those to your advantage. And you know this, Stephen, no matter what comes out of your mouth, if it's prepared and succinct, it's powerful. And the subtext to that, the, the, the message behind the message is, I've got something to say. I'm prepared to say it. Listen up. Yep. Well, tell us a little bit about this event coming up. I know that you mentioned it to me off the air, and it sounds like yeah. something people might want to be looking into. My very good friend, Terry Weaver, who just released a book, Making Elephants Fly. He's a big Dumbo fan and uses Dumbo, the metaphor of the, the little elephant who has this horrible, horrible defect of these giant ears, and it turns out to be a great asset to him. And he uses that as a metaphor. Uh, he had been uh, involved in a conference a few years ago, wanted to do his own version of it. And so we, I, I sit to him in crafting this conference last year of a diverse group of people, financial services people, um, public speakers, motivational coaches, artists, graphic designers, and so on and so on. And we're trying to name it. And I said, you know what? Just call it the thing. He said, the thing in Orlando? I said, it's in Orlando, but it's just the thing. 
So people say, you're coming to the thing. Did you go to the thing? When is the thing? So we're doing it again in May, um, and, 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 and we keep it small because everybody's together for 90% of the conference. There are some pre-conferences events. I do a behind-the-dreams tour of the Magic Kingdom where we spend a day in the Magic Kingdom. I tell you about how and why things are designed a certain way and point out some little secrets. And then we do a day before the day before where people can come early and we're doing a whiteboard day where people can bring a project or something they're working on, and Terry and I will coach them through and help them brainstorm, and then with these other people, we're at it. So it's the thing dot live on on uh, on, uh, on the on on the web. The thing dot instead of dot com dot live, and they can get more information about it. Excellent. But I'll be there. Yeah for the whole time. And it's a, it's a thing really that's for just about anybody. We did a conference, uh, a Facebook live kind of a deal this morning with a bunch of Disney travel agents to get, to get them to come to it because to, we've done some consulting with some of those folks. So anyway, that's something that I invite sure. people. Mid May in Orlando. And, um, and to connect with you online, where's the best place to catch hold of your speaking schedule, your new books coming out or order the books? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right now the, the best place is my blog site. I'm redoing my website. So just it's the uh, tea with McNair, like the drink, T-E-A with McNair. So just envision me with a cup of tea, teawithmcnair.com. Uh, my email connection is there. The connection to my TED Talk is there, a connection to the website where they can buy signed copies of, of Hatch. And I also have a few copies of my old out-of-date books because I got tired of lazy people saying, well, where do I get your out-of-print books? I said, oh, I don't know. Amazon, maybe they're all there. <laughs> but, now you've but got so them all. I, yeah, it's it's like standing next to a gumball machine and passing out pennies. I'm just that kind of guy. So, so that that's sounds great. Key with McNair is the easiest place to find me, and it's also, I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm on Twitter as myself, McNair Wilson, and so on, and it's also the best place to find me. I'm uh, my first name is starts with a C, so that Facebook they'll find me under C McNair Wilson, but just stick McNair Wilson in Google. Two or three places come up, and it's also the best place to keep to keep in touch with when the new book will be out, which will be the next few months, sometime. Excellent, yeah, that's great. Well, this has been a super conversation. I really, really appreciated um, just the insights and the background and and the expertise and experiences that you brought to the table. And I feel like no matter where people are at, it was an entertaining but also informative um, talk, and I think it's going to help them kind of hatch out of their old ideas and try something new. So, Well, thanks. Always yeah, enjoyed being with you, Steve. And we uh, thank everybody for listening in. And uh, for more information about our other guests and other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. My conferences are listed at stephenjames.net. And we have a new conference coming up in the fall of 2018 in Atlanta. It'll be the premier conference on characterization for screenwriters and also for novelists and you can get information at characterconference.com and folks always remember the art of the story is all in the blend we'll see you next time